кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. В России сегодня вступают Привет. в силу поправки Это Навальный, я уже делаю свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. What will Russia look like in 10 years or 20? How much longer will Vladimir Putin's two-decade-plus rule last? Who and what will come after him? Will Russia continue its expansionist and anti-Western course, or will it seek rapprochement? Will Russia remain intact, or will it disintegrate like the Soviet Union before it? And how should the United States and its allies prepare for all of these contingencies? Well, an important new report from the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center that will be released this week seeks to address these and other important questions about possible Russia's futures. The report, Five Scenarios for Russia's Future, is the first in a series called Russia Tomorrow, Navigating a New Paradigm. I am the series editor, and I have the author of the first report on the podcast with me this week, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the uber-hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russian watcher Casey Michelle author of the book American Kleptocracy and the forthcoming book Foreign Agents. And as I noted, Casey is also the author of the soon-to-be-released report from the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, Five Scenarios for Russia's Future. Welcome back to The Vertical, Casey. Great to be here, Brian. So, so Casey, this is the week we've all been waiting for. You'll be in D.C. <laughs> this, uh, this Friday to launch your report, the first in a series at the Atlantic Council's downtown headquarters. So it only makes sense that we tease the big event on the vertical a couple of days in advance. So let's give our readers a little tease, a little sneak preview. What are your five future scenarios and the events leading up to them, your timelines and your recommended Western responses? If you just kind of walk us through these sure. notes version of the report. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. First things first, obviously, thanks to you for helping put this series together. I certainly can't wait to read through the other papers as they are. And again, the event, the launch event for this paper in this series is going to be this Friday, uh, the 2nd of February, 12.30 p.m. Eastern. Folks can, certainly if they're in D.C., come in person, but also uh, register and watch uh, online. So and this, and this we'll first... put a link to that in the, uh, we'll put a link yeah. to that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. So this uh, this first paper that I got to work on uh, with, you know, again, this is this is a relatively long paper. I'm not going to be going through every little detail. We, we, we've got about 6,000 words or, or so for folks to, uh, to read through. But I, I do think talking about some of the top line takeaways absolutely is worth doing, giving a little taste, a little tease of what we're talking about. You know, there are there are five scenarios that this paper runs through. And again, we're, we're looking at where can we, where should we uh, expect Russia to go moving forward? Because again, Brian, you know this as well as anyone, there's been plenty of conversation, plenty of focus, rightfully so, understandably so, on Ukraine, on Ukraine's future, on Ukrainian trajectories over the past few years uh, in the West, but, but a lot less seems to have been said or discussed or even thought about what potential futures there are for, for Russia. So I'll, I'll run through the kind of five top lines, and then we can really get into the kind of nitty-gritty about time horizons and strategies therein. You know, the, the, the five that we're looking at in this paper are, one, Putin's continued rule, Putin's 
uh, a continued uh, presidency in the Kremlin, a uh, continuation of the trajectories we've certainly seen over the past few years. The second one is Putin's ouster, followed by the installation of a far-right or nationalistic figure or potentially even cadre, kind of inner circle like that. The third one is Putin's ouster, followed by a more technocratic, even if still largely uh, anti-democratic regime. The fourth one is, again, Putin's ouster, followed by what I think we've, we've, we all want. Uh, that is the rise of a liberal and thoroughly pro-Western uh, government. And the fifth one is one that we haven't seen, again, even really any, any, any true consideration of in the past, and that is a state fracture and potentially spiraling civil war uh, across the Russian Federation itself. Now, those are those are the five primary scenarios that we look at um, in the paper itself. They're not ordered in any kind of uh, likelihood. They are not um, explicit or exhaustive. There are certainly other scenarios out there, but those are the five that we focus on in this paper itself. Now, I wanted to kind of drill deeper into these, like what each of these, of course, are contingent. They're contingent on the outcome of the war. They're contingent on the effect of sanctions on Russia. They are contingent on the Russian economy. They're contingent on the outcome of elite and clan rivalries in the Kremlin. And of course, they're they're contingent on public opinion. And what I like about this is these are a lot of the papers that are going to come later in the series. So your paper is a great way to kind of launch the series because we're going to dive into these other contingencies that are going to kind of be predicates for Russia's future mm -hmm. in future papers. But how do you how do you kind of like what? What is the what are the contingencies on each of these? Well, Brian, I, I, certainly, I think you hit the nail on the head from the get go, right there. As far as I can tell, as far as I can see, from you know sitting in my uh, you know the uber hip borough of Brooklyn that it is, <laughs> the war, the war, the invasion, the ongoing devastation in Ukraine, and the ongoing incredible and seemingly bottomless bravery from Ukrainians in fighting back against what seemed to the rest of us, certainly in February 22, as insurmountable odds. And yet here we are, two years later, the Ukrainians have already retaken half of the territory Russia uh, initially invaded and occupied. Russia has not been able to take a single brand new province, you know, outside of Crimea that it claims as its own, uh, we have not seen a lot of uh, movement on the front line uh, uh, recently. And, and Brian, you've had some excellent conversations, excellent episodes recently that I don't need to reiterate about the future of the war itself. But that is what it comes down to at the end of the day. As far as I can tell and as far as I'm concerned, everything flows from the outcome of the war itself. And within that continued Western support, especially continued American support as we move forward through these political cycles in Washington, in Brussels and elsewhere. So, so a bad outcome in the war will lead to Putin's ouster. A good outcome for Russia in the war will lead to Putin's survival. I mean, what are the key things that are going to kind of branch us out? The, the what, what are the points? Sure, of sure, sure. For well, Putin staying, Putin going, and then the different contingencies from Putin. Well, you know, look where we are right now in early 2024. Look at some of the recent uh, elements of the news cycle that we have seen. Certainly, 2024 is shaping up to be a far better year for Russia than what 2023 initially shaped right. up to be if we if we cycle back 12 months ago. Uh, and again, we don't need to re reiterate all of the details there, but there is reason to think if you're sitting in the Kremlin that right now you're sitting pretty. And all you have to do is actually follow through on the strategy that seems to have been implemented in uh, the Kremlin as of, you know, maybe mid-2022 on after the initial blitzkrieg on Kiev clearly failed. And that is simply waiting out the West, waiting for the West to tire, waiting for the infighting to 
uh, sap energies and drown the discourse again in the Washingtons and the Brussels and the Londons uh, of the world, uh, waiting for things like the American election in November to go um, uh, your way, as well as other elections uh, elsewhere across Europe to go your way. If I'm, if I'm Putin, I am thinking to myself, here we are in January, February 2024. You know what? Maybe this wasn't the quagmire that a lot of folks initially thought. And maybe if I do wait this out, if I could be patient and outlast the West, then we can get back to this first scenario. And that is Putin's continued rule, his continued dominance of the former Russian colonial space, the increasing hegemony of Russia across parts of Eastern Europe, and potentially even looking out a little bit further, the dismantling of things like NATO and the European security architecture writ large. And all of it, again, comes back to support for Ukraine or in many cases, or certainly in this case, lack thereof. If that support continues to wane, if that eventually falters and, and Putin can illustrate to pockets and polities in the West that there is nothing that the West can do. There's nothing the United States can do to dislodge Russia, to push Russia back out of Ukraine. And again, we're talking about all of Ukrainian sovereign territory. Then all he has to do is sit there and wait for us to falter. He can continue in power. And again, getting back to what the paper itself details about this very first strategy. I, you know, if I'm Putin, I, I'm thinking maybe I will be in power until at least 2036. Certainly he'll be term limited at that point, And I'm sure he'll respect those term limits. I think it'll be biology limited, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, given given the advances in, in AI that we have seen recently, to say nothing of medical science, boy, I I don't want to be the, you know 100% certain of even biological limits at this point. Well, let's imagine this scenario then, and and this I think is a highly likely scenario, quite frankly. Um, Putin's shown us to be remarkably resilient. He's been in power for 24 years now, and and, and so this would be a, basically a continuation of the status quo. Putinism continues. Putin continues. Regarding Ukraine, uh, maybe they take some more territory, maybe they, they keep what they have, they effectively annex what they have, um, and we move forward. So that's that's that scenario. And that scenario is contingent. The key, the key variable in this scenario is us, right? Absolutely. It's the West. Um, it, it, it's the United States Congress. It's it's the White House. It's the European Commission. It's the European Parliament. It's, 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 uh, it's the West. This one really depends on us because it's dependent on Putin outlasting us. Is that Absolutely. my question? And this is this is why I think you see these ideas certainly out of Moscow right now being floated, these notions of Russia being open to negotiation, being right. open to sitting down and striking a deal. And sure, maybe we don't come to an agreement on absolutely everything. But you know what? We know the West is tired. We know Western body politics are tired. We know certainly folks in Congress in Washington are tired and want to move on. Let's just have a conversation and if anything, get back to the status quo ante where folks in Washington and elsewhere think they can kind of just park this issue without realizing this is the same policy we have been pursuing for at least a decade at this point, if not longer, kind of out of sight, out of mind, which is exactly what Putin is happy to have so long as he can retain what he has already gained in Ukraine, continue rebuilding, continue uh, restoring the Russian economy and arms manufacturing uh, for another lurch forward, another uh, expanded invasion at some point in the future until Ukraine is fully and finally neutered. It is gelded. It is subservient. Maybe not all of Ukraine is formally annexed, but any notion of Ukrainian sovereignty 
sovereignty and in independence outside of anything written on paper is, uh, uh, you know, is, is a fantasy. Yeah, what happens to Ukraine there, with all due respect and apologies to our friends in Finland who ate this term, Ukraine becomes Finlandized. Yeah, this allows Putin to live to fight another day. It puts other former Soviet states like Georgia and Moldova at risk. And Absolutely. it basically freezes us back to where we were before February 24, 2022. Now, you have some policy wrecks in this because this is an Atlantic Council paper and we do policy wrecks. Um, what are your policy wrecks? It, it looks like like we followed a policy that neither of us would recommend uh, to lead to this contingency if we if, if in fact God forbid we end up with this contingency. Sure. What does the West do going forward here? What are you recommending going forward? Well, look, we've certainly seen a lot of struggles in terms of policy implementation over the past few years, given where we are right now. Ukraine obviously has not succeeded on the battlefield. The Russian economy has not yet uh, you know, imploded or fully destabilized or whatever terminology you'd like to use. But there are certainly lessons and elements and even successes within that that we should continue moving forward, certainly on the sanctions and especially on the secondary sanctions side. These right. programs need to be implemented. They need to be strengthened. As I mentioned in the paper, these this, these um, uh, secondary sanctions, which we've really only begun to touch right now, targeting partner economies, targeting international partners that are circumventing Western sanctions as is. I'm I mean, looking Brian, at you, Turkey, Kazakhstan, Georgia, and Armenia. I'm absolutely. And you saw, I think, Brian, just a few weeks ago, the U.S. formally slap, slapping sanctions on an Emirati shipping company as yeah. well, which was circumventing another part of this policy moving forward, and that is strengthening and even lowering the price cap on hydrocarbon exports that we have seen over the past year or so, which does seem to have had a remarkable success. But again, it's one of those things that needs to be strengthened, needs to be enforced, needs to be regulated to the fullest extent possible. That's We effectively need to continue turning Russia into, if not a depressed economy, then at least a hothouse. And again, we have seen indications of, of that already, especially on the inflationary side, and especially as, as, as Russia continues barreling toward kind of junior partner status vis-a-vis -vis China. We have seen successes in this space over the past year, over the past two years. They need to be extended, expanded, enforced, and entrenched so that, um, uh, you know, they kind of run on their own moving forward. So it's kind of a mild containment policy going forward, I guess is how is, I would characterize that. Yes, it is a mild containment, even a kind of neo-containment, because there are also security arrangements, security security partnerships that we have seen as well. Obviously, NATO already expanding in Finland and soon to be Sweden, strengthening uh, NATO-based security rela relationships and forward operability, uh, extending to uh, um, uh, strengthened partnerships in places like Bosnia and Kosovo, as well as deepening diplomatic relations, and potentially if they're predicated on democratic reforms or continued democratic reforms um, in places like Moldova, in places like Armenia, even in places like Kazakhstan, perhaps less so Belarus at this point, as long as Lukashenko remains in power. But this kind of, you know, um, uh, thinking outside the box insofar as we're also including third parties, we're thinking beyond just what can we do directly to or against Russia, but looking at other potential partnerships around the region as well. Right. Let's move to the second scenario. And in this scenario, Putin is removed mm -hmm. and he's replaced with a, a nationalist. We get kind of Putinism on steroids. Yeah. We get we get an even more imperialistic and even more authoritarian leader. Basically, this is the Russia goes full on fascist yeah. scenario. Yeah. What are the contingencies that lead to this? And then let's go to the, the wrecks after that. 
Sure. And again, I feel like I'm going to sound a broken record at some point, but much of this gets back again to the domestic um, uh, front in Ukraine or the, the the front of the war in Ukraine. Continued successes by the Ukrainian side, continued struggles by the Russian side, more more, more Russian body bags being sent home, uh, more clear and present Russian failures, especially strategic failures out of the Kremlin itself, will directly inflame the nationalist contingent that Putin certainly has gravitated toward. But my goodness, do I not need to recommend, uh, remind you or any of the other listeners what it looked like back in June of last year when Yevgeny Prigozhin seemed right. to have a wide open road to Moscow. I mean, you want to talk about a moment when the czar had no clothes. My goodness. Right. That right. was right there. It, it is funny. I mean, I think, Brian, a year ago, if you and I were talking about that, it would have seemed like total fantasy. And yet Yevgeny Prigozhin proved that boy, that road is wide open if and when these nationalist contingents want to continue marching. And, and I will say from a, um, God knows I don't want to give them any credit, but if they continue to use the, the notion of, or cite the idea of Putin, Putin's inner circles, Putin's cronies, Putin's kleptocratic networks as being at fault, being responsible for the failures of this war and the need thereafter for the ouster of Putin, and again, the implementation of a nationalistic regime, I think they're going to find a lot of fertile territory in Russia for that. So this is predicated on failure in the war. Yes. Um, yes. Maybe not total defeat yet. Maybe total no, defeat. It, it, it doesn't it, need to. It, no, it doesn't need to be total defeat, but it can be rolling. It can be cascading failures. It doesn't need to be Ukraine reclaiming every single inch of Crimea. It doesn't even need to necessarily be a thrust into places like Kharkiv, like we saw, uh, uh, you know, two years ago. It needs to be the continuing proof that Putin's strategy is failing. It is bleeding Russia of men and material, and it is time for him to go. Now, again, the counterpoint to that being it is the implementation of a far more fascistic and, in this case, nationalist regime itself, which will bring its own basket of issues. No, we're, I, I, I know you weren't really writing about the kind of uh, personnel politics in the inner circle, but with Pigosian, uh dead and buried, with Strelkov, Girkin Strelkov, you know, in, in, in prison, one has to wonder who would be the figure here, or would this figure come out of out of nowhere? A lot of people have mentioned uh, mentioned Patrushev, the Putin's national security advisor, as, as something. Now, he's been a, a Putin loyalist from day one, although there's conflicting reports about the actual nature of their relationship. Do you see a figure out there? In the no, I, I don't see a singular figure, certainly not one of Prigozhin's stature. I mean, again, Brian, remember, it was just shocking at the time how public he was with his criticism of of Shoigu with his criticism of Gerasimov and even of his kind of glancing criticism of Putin itself. Certainly there's no figure like that on the public side that, that we have seen, but the, the, the fodder is there, the ferment is there. Right. And frankly, it's just waiting for a figure to kind of grab it by the lapels and use that nationalistic rhetoric to propel themselves uh, to power or to you know a potential uh, uh, attempted ousting of Putin and his inner circle itself. Right, so it could be a general we don't we haven't heard of. It could uh, be... Absolutely. Somebody who is you know, part of the Wagner group, the leadership was all killed in that plane crash. Now, what does the West do in this situation and how is it different in the in the Putin space? Because it's kind of soft fascism and hard fascism. Basically. It is. It is. Yes, no, very much so. And again, it's, I, I feel like a broken record. It's the continuation of many of the policies that I mentioned earlier, including things like, you know, you've had conversations about this, the seizure of Russian central bank assets directed toward um, Ukrainian reconstruction itself. It is um, not only the expanding of the sanctions and secondary sanctions policies, as well as the conversations with and potentially deep, deepening diplomatic and security arrangements with, with other partners, Russian neighbors. One of the particularly unique elements of this, though, is as I write about in the paper, 
I can certainly foresee an instance in which we have this rising nationalistic regime that realizes that is that is not nearly as saturated in the kind of you know ten thousand foot level almost uh, you know conspiratorial notions of the war is going well. All we need to do is outlast the West. Uh, you know these are figures that I can certainly foresee coming from uh, those that were fighting on the ground in Ukraine, those who saw just how horribly, you know, front and center, firsthand accounts, just how horribly the war was going, and understanding full well that this war cannot be continued to Russia's benefit in the immediate future. That is to say, there is a conversation coming out of a potentially nationalistic regime about pulling back, about some kind of even quasi-detente emerging and uh, pulling troops back, which would certainly be a welcome development. The thing that certainly I write about in this, and that I'll, I'll talk about later this week, is what Western policymakers have to, have to, have to remember and realize is that with this nationalistic regime, this dream of a Russian empire restored is not dead. Because these troops may have been pulled back for the foreseeable future, that does not mean that this Russia under a nationalistic regime is not simply regrouping for another day. This is, again, one of the failures that we have witnessed over the past 20, 25 years, frankly, even going back to the Yeltsin period, of the nationalists within and surrounding the Kremlin using that to bide their time to then launch these wars of conquest in Ukraine, in Georgia, and and elsewhere. So a so reminder- a strategic retreat, basically. A strategic retreat, absolutely. But that does not mean this dream of a Russian empire restored is dead. It is simply going into hibernation, waiting for another opportune moment. Gotcha. Well, let's go to the next scenario. And again, this is Putin's ouster or death or departure from the scene in whatever way, and replacement by a technocratic regime. What do we mean by a technocratic regime? Yeah. And what does this look like and what leads to it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this, this is actually um, a scenario that alongside the first one, that's Putin's continued rule. This scenario is is perhaps the easiest to foresee to foresee moving forward. As I write in the paper, maybe on my end, perhaps even the most dangerous one moving forward. Now, I'll talk about that in a moment. If we have the continued failures in Ukraine, the continued economic failures back home, it's not difficult for me to foresee a kind of redux of what we saw in Moscow in 1964 when a cadre of Kremlin insiders sat down to Kita Khrushchev and said, you know, Mr. Premier, thank you for your time. It's been wonderfully well spent. We hope you enjoy your retirement. Or even think about things like 2008, the rise of uh, uh, Dmitry Medvedev and his inner circle into the into the presidency itself. It is a turning over of the guard. It is the implementation of a new regime, a new government focused primarily not on these broad kind of grand eloquent geopolitical goals, but on things like economic reforms, on like uh, on things like dialogue and on things like opening up diplomatic channels to the West and restoring some kind of parity, restoring some kind of partnership, thinking of things as as business as usual, admitting that there were failures of the previous regime, uh, admitting that there were responsibilities for those failures by the previous regime, but not necessarily wanting to focus fully and forthrightly on what the actual costs of those failures were, uh, at least as it pertains to um, uh, funding Ukrainian reconstruction, but focusing more on the kind of almost... I hate to say it, but like kind of PR pablum of saying, look, we know mistakes were made. We're going to do better. And we look forward to doing business with you in the future. 
but the essence of the regime is going to remain the same. We're going to pretend we're not fascists anymore uh, scenario, if, if you will. Um, you use the Khrushchev scenario, who Khrushchev, of course, followed Stalin, and then he was ousted by a cadre of Brezhnev and Kusigin. But we got to remember, it was under Khrushchev that the Soviet Union invaded Hungary in 56, yeah. right? Yeah. Technocratic regimes can be dangerous too. But my fear, for me, this is my most fearful scenario. Because in the serious scenario, as we've kind of outlined all, it already, the mask is off and the West is going to have to respond. This is the one where this new regime is going to be anointed, you know, by somebody, the the new kind of Russian reformist regime. And the, the, the business community is going to want to go back to business as usual, specifically in the energy sector. And that this regime will be ready, will be allowed to regroup without its essence yeah. changing. The mask won't be off. It'll kind of like be going back to Russia pre-2014, mm -hmm. uh, whether mm -hmm. we're talking about the first two terms or the Medvedev interregnum there, that was dangerous. I mean, yeah. I'm writing about this now in my own book. Um, that was, those delusions were dangerous. So what are your Western policy wrecks for this scenario? How do we not get fooled? No, I, boy, well, I, I won't get fooled again right now. I mean, Ryan, you know, the term that comes to mind, obviously, is, is reset. And I, certainly we saw that in 2008. Frankly, you could even argue that we saw that in 2000 with Putin's rise to power in the first place, to say nothing of previous Soviet iterations in and of itself. I mean, at the broadest strategy level, if you see a new cadre coming to power that prefers the technocratic elements and is certainly willing to admit to mistakes in Ukraine and is potentially even willing to wash their hands of Putin's September 22 annexations, even if they don't want to fully wash their hands of the Crimean annexation for 2014, there will certainly be cause for celebration, as you just said, Brian, among the business community and among many, many, many pockets of the Western political establishment. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you have to distrust this this regime. I mean, the the the, the phrase that I use with the, with the strategy um, uh, strategic proposals within the paper is distrust but verify. Right. No, open, I love know. that phrase and, in your paper. Um, thanks, thanks, which brother. was a pleasure to edit, by the way. Yeah, um, I thanks, thanks, brother. I I confess I did not come up with the phrase on my own. I can't recall where I initially saw it. Obviously, it echoes of uh, former President Reagan's uh, policy uh, in, in the 1980s itself. Look, there's no reason not to open up dialogue with this regime. There's no reason not to sit down with them. But at the end of the day, the core interests, the core interests of the West have to be front and center. That is restoring Ukraine to its 1991 borders. That is paying for Ukrainian reconstruction. That is certainly you can still have discussions about sanctions being lifted, hydrocarbon caps being lifted, so long as they are predicated on what remains, again, core Western interests. Stability on the European continent, the continued uh, security architecture vis-a-vis NATO and the uh, ability for each and every country, a former Russian colony or otherwise, to decide their own fate without placing Russian concerns front and center, overriding all of those other concerns uh, and interests for those other uh, countries around the region. So do you do you envision kind of keeping other elements of containment in place because this is a regime we can't trust? but yet is showing a nicer face to the world. Basically. Absolutely. So and it becomes down to, again, 
words are one thing, actions are another. If there is a, and, and again, it, it comes back to Ukraine, if there is a willingness to recognize Ukraine uh, and its 1991 borders, if there's a willingness to fund Ukrainian reconstruction, if there's a willingness to prosecute former members of the administration, and then, oh, by the way, beyond that, if there is uh, continued evidence of the democratization of the Russian body politic itself, I mean, look, th that's a whole can of worms. What is right. this regime going to do with Chechnya? What is this regime going to do in terms of elections and election monitors? That's frankly another podcast episode unto itself right but the elements of containment the sanctions policies the hydrocarbon caps the continued diplomatic and security uh, deepening of relations with russia's neighbors those all have to continue until we see you know to use a term the proof that's in the pudding that this new regime is beyond just the rhetoric uh because again it gets back to distrusting until you verify that this regime right. is what it actually says it is rather than just a kind of redux of the regimes we've seen in the past Right, and there's a good rule of thumb with with all Russian regimes: watch what they do, not what they don't listen Absolutely. to what they say. It's incumbent on us to actually look at what they're doing. No, they know what buttons to push uh, to kind of get to, to get the response. It's an old KGB doctrine known as reflexive control. Uh, let's move to the next scenario, um, which I frankly consider the least likely, and we'll get into reasons for that in the second half, actually. But this democratic flowering, the Moscow Spring. Yes. Yes. No, absolutely. Look, look, Brian, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I absolutely agree. And as I mentioned in the paper, you know, for the foreseeable future, this does seem like the least or at least one of the least likely scenarios. But but I do want to say over the long run, and maybe I'm being very Pollyannish, maybe I'm being wildly naive, but I, I do remain optimistic over the long run, God willing in my lifetime, and I'm not as young as I used to be, that I will see this flourishing of a Russian democracy, of democracy in Russia, either as the Russian Federation is co currently constructed or, or otherwise. I, I simply remain, and again, maybe this is too naive, maybe I've, I've simply met too many uh, Russian nationals who, who, who are, 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 are equally optimistic about this in the long run, that we will eventually live to see a Russian democracy, simply because, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that is that is the the trajectory over the longest horizon uh, in Europe, and, and as well as frankly uh, elsewhere itself. Look, I, I I don't need to run through all the details of this. This is the you know Putin's ouster, followed by uh, the, the the Russian you know frankly the promise of 1991, uh, free and fair elections. Maybe it's not Navalny, maybe it's one of his colleagues, maybe it's someone else that is freely and fairly elected to the presidency and uses that bully pup pulpit to push through the kind of democratic. Forums that we've seen take place in other Eastern European nations, think places like uh, uh, the Czech Republic, think places like Poland, uh, certainly places like the Baltics and Ukraine as well. It is not out of the realm of possibility that we can see this, but it's certainly not likely anytime soon. And this, of course, is contingent on getting their butts kicked in the war. Absolutely. Again, I know, and I sound like a broken record talking about sounding like a broken record, but it all comes back to Russian failures in the war as a predicate, as a necessary step for the flowering of, the flourishing of, the pushing of the broader Russian body politic to supporting democratic reforms, democratic leadership, and democratic elections. And look, it's not just about elections. You know, as I detail in the paper, we also have to see things like decentralization or you know, the unwinding of the 1993 Russian super president presidential constitution and far more, far, far, far more strengthening of federal bodies themselves. You know, it's it's decentralization, it's deconfliction, pulling out of Ukraine, pulling out of Georgia, as well as, again, these kind of democratic reforms in Russia itself. 
Now, do we continue the mistrust but verify, or does this regime get the benefit of the doubt? Because again, we've been fooled in the past, and I, I mean, you're describing a scenario where Russia truly goes democratic. Here. So I, um, I, I look. I, I, what I wrote was trust but verify. And again, maybe this gets back to my my optimism, but I, I felt like I had to use that at least for one of these scenarios itself. But it does come back to again actions rather than words looking at what steps are being taken, have been implemented, rather than what statements are, are being made in um, uh, uh, diplomatic channels or uh, even, frankly, in, in, in treaties uh, themselves. You know, I, I, I have a few other recommendations within here. Uh, you know, it, it's policies of lustration uh, regarding former members uh, of the regime itself. Again, it's talking about opening dialogue about sanctions relief, um, even opening new consulates around Russia so that we can have further on-the-ground monitoring of these kind of democratic Democratic reforms in places like Grozny, in places like Yakutsk, in places like St. Petersburg, uh, implementing or, or, or structuring conversations with other federal governments, places like Canada, places like Germany, to look at what has succeeded and how it can be implemented in Russia itself. You know, again, all of that being said, it's still with an awareness that this beast of Russian imperialism, beast of Russian nationalism, may be hibernating, may even be on its last legs, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's been slain yet. And again, I think of figures like Alexei Navalny for even with all of his democratic credentials, obviously has said, frankly, horrific things in the past about you know, those in the North Caucasus, those in the South Caucasus as well, uh, as well as openly considered uh, restructuring Russia's border with Ukraine. It is constant vigilance, constant uh, awareness that Russian nationalism is something that can rise uh, quite quickly, and frankly, it'll take generations to stamp out. Right, right. So this is, I mean, everything is contingent on actual actions to yeah. show that this is real and not an illusion. We've got a little bit of time left in the first segment. I wanted to just hit this last scenario. I know this is something you write about a lot, as does Janusz Bugajski at the um, at the Jamestown Foundation um, and Paul Gomel, of course, the legendary former State Department official. Uh, the scenario that Russia follows in the footsteps of the Soviet Union in 91 yeah. and breaks up. What are the contingencies leading to this? And then let's look at the the policy responses. Yeah, yeah. Certainly the contingent again, failure in Ukraine, failure vis-a-vis -vis, um, the Ukrainian invasion as well. I, I don't foresee the scenario taking place under Putin's rule, but depending on his method of ousting of departure, and the potential opening up of a vacuum of power, vacuum of leadership in Moscow. This is a scenario that certainly needs to be considered uh, and no longer dismissed uh, outright. And again, that's not necessarily something over the next few years, but maybe we are 10, 15, certainly even 20 years down the line, something that should be considered for any number of reasons itself, not least of which this is the pattern that we saw play out in 1917, 1918. This is the power of uh, uh, the pattern we saw play out in 1991 when there is a vacuum of leadership, um, an unruly transition of leadership in Moscow, we see a range of then current and now former Russian colonies um, uh, achieve uh, freedom, whether it was Poland and Finland in the 1910s and 1920s or uh, 14 other nations uh, in 1991. This is a pattern we have seen play out before. I, I, I One of the biggest struggles on my end is, is, is um, dealing with the terminology of a situation like this. 
you have fracturing, you have disintegration, you have dissolution, all of which point in the direction, gesture in the direction. Maybe I should have used something more like fraying uh, of the Russian mm -hmm. Federation itself, especially along the North Caucasus. Think of places like uh, Chechnya, although increasingly places like Dagestan as well. Um, potentially even think of places like Saha or uh, or Tatarstan. The reason, well, yeah, it's right in the heart of like the Russian right. Federation, you have right, Tatarstan. Right, right which I think is the most viable state. If, oh, if a, right, a, th a thousand, a thousand percent. If only, well, for, for multiple reasons, the cultural identity, the distinct history, um, the kind of increasing salience and understanding of Tatarstan's role as a Russian colony, but also the hydrocarbon well. I mean, frankly, all right. the natural resources, as well as uh, to an extent in Saha uh, itself. You know, I discussed the scenario and a few potential predicates for it, you know, whether it's protests breaking out and crackdowns from Russian security services, whether it's, again, the, the vacuum of leadership in um, uh, uh, Moscow itself. But more than really anything, kind of as a as a, as a creed occur, kind of a, a cry for future policymakers and, frankly, even listeners of this podcast itself to familiarize themselves with the internal colonies within the Russian Federation right. itself. I don't know that that necessarily means they need to learn Chechen or learn Sakha or learn Tatar, but that would be a fantastic benefit. But I think the awareness, the the the, the understanding, and, and Brian, you've talked about this on podcasts previously, that there is far more happening in Russia outside of Moscow and even outside of Petersburg itself. I mean, God knows we've been caught flat-footed so many times previously. Yeah, no, I mean, my first trip into the Soviet Union was to Tatarstan. I learned Russian in Kazan. So what does the West do in this mess? Yeah, uh, a mess it will be, but also an opportunity it will be. But frankly, a lot of this will be leaning on current and um, hopefully strengthening partnerships as well, whether it's uh, turning to Turkish partners for aid vis-a-vis -vis the North Caucasus, whether it's turning to Kazakh or Mongolian partners uh, in places like North Asia, I suppose even potentially Chinese partners for security and stability concerns in North Asia. But that, that's kind of a, a maybe a, maybe a bridge too far right there, as well as the Ukrainians and the Poles for uh, potential transitions in Russia, as well as a potentially post Lukashenko Belarus itself. And it is a willingness to be to to implement far more. And again, this is at the strategic level, far more uh, nimbleness, far more agility as it pertains to uh, potential recognition and support for these new polities that are um, uh, emerging themselves. Again, all of that, all of that predicated on democratic reforms themselves. The last thing we want is just a brand new, you know, archipelago of despots and tyrants uh, across across Eastern Europe and, and Northern Asia it has to be predicated on domestic reform itself. But but you know I, I say this and Brian I think I was emailing with you about this just the other day. I just finished off another article looking at the kind of century long history of American policy regarding Ukraine and digging into some of the archives uh, from the Wilson administration and looking at how time and time and time again the Wilson administration and President Wilson himself shunted to the side. Uh, Ukrainians' clear calls for recognition, for independence, right. and for Western support, um, effectively consigning the Ukrainians to another 75 years or so of Russian domination. And then obviously we've seen the legacy of that. You know, here we are in 2024. You know, a, a far greater familiarity of the Russian Federation as it's currently constructed, not as one homogenous polity, but one that is constructed of many disparate entities that deserve far more familiarity right. and far more focus. 
Yeah, no, Wilson's self-determination of nations apparently stopped at the Ukrainian border, much Absolutely. like Russian liberalism often stops at the Ukrainian border. I did appreciate your call for kind of more language and culture training in places like the State Department and the intelligence community, because in 91, we were caught flat-footed. I've talked to people well, exactly. in the State Department about this. Everything was Moscow-centric. People had very little knowledge of these other former Soviet republics, um, so that was appreciated. It's a good place to shift gears. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at the perils of predicting Russia's future, the problems of determinism and essentialism, and the we-won't-get-fooled-again syndrome plaguing our generation of Russia watchers and why we in the West just keep getting Russia wrong. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UCA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the uber-hit borough of Brooklyn, New York, is journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the book American Kleptocracy and the forthcoming book Foreign Agents, both are must reads. And Casey, of course, is the author of the soon-to-be-released report from the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, Five Scenarios for Russia's Future. It is excellent, and I ought to know because I edited it. Uh, I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical, and now you can follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical, and you can subscribe to the Power Vertical's new Substack at brianwhitmore.substack.com. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. Не слушал. Послушайте Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже за свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности. Гонов вас. С новым веком. So as I noted in the transition case, I wanted to unpack some of the problems we all have in assessing Russia's future and seeing the country clearly. The late Russian political operative Gleb Pavlovsky once glibly said that when the Putin regime falls, it'll fall in one day and it will be replaced by something exactly like it. And, the, the, uh, and this points to something that I have struggled with. The problem of essentialism and the problem of determinism. Um, and you alluded to this when we discussed this, what I consider the unlikely transition to democracy. Um, many of us, myself included, look at Russia and see a web of entrenched patron-client networks, a deeply-seated political culture of autocracy and arbitrary rule, a lack of viable institutions, the absence of the rule of law and a weak civil society. And we come to the conclusion that nothing meaningful will ever change. We see a Russia that has remained in the essence of its governments the same from medieval Moscovy to the Russian Empire to the Soviet Union to the present-day Russian Federation. The external forms have changed, but the essence of arbitrary oligarchic rule and imperialistic tendencies has always remained the same. Do you struggle with this like I do? Because I do struggle with this. Uh, do you have a difficult time envisioning real, meaningful political change in Russia? Yeah, I, I, absolutely, Brian. I mean, I think one of the reasons I appreciated writing this paper and you letting me write this paper so much is because it forced me out of the kind of inertia, the mm -hmm. ease with which it is to see and foresee the continuation of a regime like this. Maybe it's Putin's, maybe it's someone else. And certainly I appreciate Mr. Pavlovsky's uh, confidence that a Putin replacement will simply be a Putin redux. It is easy to sit back and not have to 
try to foresee something different. This forced me to stretch these kind of imaginative, creative muscles that I wouldn't otherwise. Now, I, I will say, having done that, having this project now behind me, obviously, again, we'll be speaking on Friday further about this. I think I'm going to have to disagree with Mr. Pavlovsky. Not that that isn't a likely scenario, or certainly a potential scenario, but that is not the only scenario moving forward. And again, maybe it's Putin in 2024, maybe it's Putin in 2036. God help us if it's Putin in 2050. But there are other elements at play, other contingencies at play that can push things in a different direction. Um, now, now I would, in defense of, of Gleb Pavlovsky and kind of explaining my own thinking about this, I mean, you're familiar with the Russian term pakazuka. Right, just for show, oh, right? The yeah, the existence of the you know, and also the Potemkin sky that have there, the the Potemkin village, right? What we've seen change in Russia are forms yeah. over time. We've never truly seen essence change, yeah. and this is what I mean. I don't mean that like, yes, it's to, it's going to be exactly how it is in form. But in essence, below the surface, this is what, and and this is kind of me kind of revisiting the 90s when both you and I cut our teeth, right? You as a, as a Peace Corps volunteer and later as a journalist and, and me, me as an academic and working for a nonprofit and then later as a journalist, we all saw this firsthand, right? Yeah. We thought it was changing. And then when you dig a little deeper, you find out it ain't changing at all. And this is what I mean. I mean the essence, not the form. Look, Brian, I, I think... Clearly, none of this transformative change, none of this essential change will take place until the dragons of Russian nationalism and Russian imperialism are finally slain and finally put to bed. We will not see the kind of democratic transition, certainly not the kind of respect for Russian neighbors or the um, you know fertility, the fecundity, the ability to turn to Russian nationalistic rhetoric as a means of gathering support. We will not see that pushed to the side until Russian nationalism is finally, finally, finally killed. And again, this gets back to the war in Ukraine. And certainly this, this is a story we have seen elsewhere across the European continent, whether it's with the, the Brits in Ireland and India, whether it's with the French in Algeria and Vietnam, you know, you know, pick it, whether it's with the, with, with, the, with the Spanish in, um, uh, in Latin America and eventually in, in, in places even like Equatorial Guinea when they finally gave up their final colonies. It isn't until they give up these dreams of empire, of colonization, and nationalism that they realize democracy is the best thing remaining. This is the path to pursue moving forward. And 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 I I will say and again, right? Of course, your point on the length of time that we are taught, the hundreds of years of this kind of essential core remaining. I mean, it's absolutely well taken. The only thing that I can respond with is that things do seem like they last forever until they don't. And again, I think of the kind of reforms we saw across Central and Eastern Europe, even in places like Germany itself, uh, to say nothing of, of the Polands and the Baltics of the world in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, you know, over the span of just weeks, totalitarian regimes dissolve, democratic regimes emerge, and maybe it's not perfect moving forward. And certainly there's been slippage in places like Hungary, but that essence has shifted, if not totally, then certainly considerably. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate here a little bit because you you cited some very good examples, the Brits, the French, the Spanish. All of those were nations that were formed as nations. They were not formed as empires. They are nations that became empires. With Russia, it's hard to say if the, if the, if the nation formed an empire or an empire formed a nation. 
And this is what I mean is that imperialism was ingrained in Russia from its very foundation. And so that makes it a little bit difficult, more difficult than it is for the Spanish, for the Brits, for the French to give it up. These European nations were, I mean, the seeds of democracy were planted in these nations before they became empires. They all experienced the Enlightenment, the Reformation, the Renaissance, all of the things that put Western civilization on a path towards democracy, albeit imperfect. Mm -hmm. None of these things happened in Russia. Mm -hmm. And this is the way that Russia's different. And this is something I kind of work through within my class with my students explaining, like, why is this otherwise European nation unlike other European nations? Why is it different? And it is that almost from 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 the very foundation of the of of medieval Muscovy, it was predicated on expansionism and the empire formed the state. It's not a state that formed an empire. So this makes it a little more difficult, no? Oh, absolutely. It's certainly not a one-to-one. Essentialist. I want to be careful. No, I But I do think this is where, you know, you've had conversations with Jeff Mankoff, who's really the expert in this space in the past, of of imperial legacies and post-imperial transformations uh, themselves and the kind of comparativist approach we can take to other European, or excuse me, other empires elsewhere. It's by no means limited to the Brits and the French or even the Germans or or, or Spanish and Portuguese, but also think of the Turks, also think of things like Austro-Hungary. Frankly, you could even throw the United States of America in that obviously expanding to conquer a continent and then far beyond through places like the Pacific, all while still maintaining and then furthering democratic reforms in uh, in the United States uh, uh, itself. There are lessons to be mined. There are lessons to be learned, all while still appreciating the unique elements of Russian history unto itself. I mean, Brian, I, I know we talked about, we talked earlier, not only about my hope that I live long enough to see the kind of democratic flowering, but my my perhaps naive assumption that that is inevitable. And frankly, that belief in an inevitability is maybe essentialist in and of itself. So I, I don't want to necessarily put that front and center as something I'm 100% confident in. But I do think, and again, getting back to contingencies, it will, if nothing else, require a full sale recognition an internal dialogue within Russia itself, the recognition of Russia as an empire, of Russia as a colonial empire, something that was not benign whatsoever. And really, I think back to like where American conversations were on this in like the 1950s and 1960s. Mm-hmm. And really, I mean, it's taken a half century, if longer. We've only really begun talking about the kind of legacies of those kind of colonial crimes. Certainly, that's only begun really kind of barely impacting policy in Washington, but all of it for the better, all of it a conversation, all of it progress that I have to imagine, I have to hope, will continue taking place in Russia as the decades move on. I don't know if they will ever necessarily get there for you know, at hundreds of years, but it is a process. It's an iterative process right. and it's a conversation. Yeah, no, and, inter- and that, it, you're right. It does have to start with an internal conversation in Russia. Actually, the second paper in this series is coming from Mikhail Zigar, who's looking at the Russian inner circle, but I would highly recommend Mikhail's latest book, War and Punishment, which is an attempt to start this conversation about the ingrained nature of imperialism in the Russian political culture. I, I My hat's off to Mikhail for starting that conversation. I don't know if he's listening. Um, his paper is going to be the second in the series. The, the last thing I want to touch on before we wrap it up, and we're going to continue this conversation live and in person here in downtown Washington on Wednesday at the Atlanta Council's headquarters, you and I both come from the same kind of perestroika generation. 
right? We're, we're roughly the same age. Maybe you're a little younger. I don't know, but we're roughly the same age. We kind of came of age during Gorbachev's reforms. We both went East. We both ventured East into the former Soviet space in, in different uh, capacities. You went as a, a Peace Corps volunteer. I went working for a nonprofit called Civic Education Project at that time. We both kind of gravitated into journalism. We both kind of ended up in this kind of amorphous space uh, between media and policy analysis and academia and journalism. Now, our generation has a problem in terms of Russia. And I'll and I think it's a it's a two pro, two problems that are two sides of the same coin. One side I call the we won't get fooled again paradigm. You know, the we 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 won't get fooled again problem. We went over there bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and young Americans in our late 20s and early 30s, way back in the early 90s, and we thought we were witnessing history. Russia was becoming a democracy. and This was inevitable. It was the end of history. And then suddenly it wasn't. And then suddenly it just reverted to form. And I think in our generation of Russia watchers, there's a bitterness. It's almost an anger, and it's almost a sense of betrayal. And I know I went from, like, the most optimistic like kind of Russia booster to the the Russia hawk I am today because of this experience, because of what I saw. I went through an intellectual journey. I think it was honestly arrived at. I think it was kind of well thought out. But nevertheless, some of us have this we won't get fooled again syndrome. Some of us who came of age in that period, and I don't count you and I among this, but uh, some believe that was the norm that perestroika period, that period from 85 to Putin's rise was normal. And if you look at the sweep of Russian history, that wasn't normal. So they all believe, well, we can just get back to this normal stuff we had in this 15 year period out of a centuries, centuries of Russian history, well, then everything would just be hunky-dory. Does our generation have a specific problem on this? Well, Brian, I, I don't know if it's particular to this generation insofar as, as, as having a problem. I, I think the optimism was more than understandable. And I think back to things like the Arab Spring, right, 10, 12 years ago at this point, the optimism we saw at that point, then since being snuffed out by the rollbacks. I imagine this is a similar pattern we have seen play out all the way back to, um, you know, frankly, the 1840s and the European revolutions we saw there, maybe even the French Revolution before that, the role and relationship of optimism to revolution, to sweeping change and then counter-revolution leading to cynicism and concerns is, I think, a pattern we have seen play out before. It is, as you mentioned, especially concerning that there are still voices, still forces that believe the kind of late Gorbachevian to early Putinism era is the kind of uh, uh, normalcy That's that the is, 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 yeah. is the default, is built in. God knows I don't ascribe to that, but those voices are there. Now, I will say the silver lining to Putin's expanded invasion in 2022 is I think those voices are a lot less prominent and frankly, even a lot fewer in number. I do think a lot of folks that may have ascribed to that are having second thoughts of their own. And look, I, I, I don't want to begrudge anyone for coming to our party a little late. We're just happy to have them in. Right. It's incumbent on us. It's incumbent on us to continue these conversations to let those that are still in, the, in that camp, frankly, an opposing camp at this point, why they are wrong, why they are uh, miscalculating, and uh, what blinders they have have on themselves. But but if we're talking generations, Brian, you know, I, I think, and this is what you had last week. Um, and maybe it's it's worth having more of these in the, in the future. We have now a younger generation coming of age 
that is not only seeing Russia and Russian nationalism for what it is, does not have any of the blinders of the perestroika era uh, or any of the, again, kind of naive optimism, certainly that I've been spouting off about today, but also has the opportunity, has the reality, has the platform to not even necessarily center Moscow in studying the region, but whether it is turning to Kiev and Ukrainian studies first, mm. whether frankly it's 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 I think one of my great benefits is I actually was introduced to the region via Kazakhstan rather than Moscow, right. so I didn't have that necessarily Moscow-centric view. That I you know it's it, it's coming at it with a a tangential element, a side element where you center other conversations, other realities, right. other legacies, and my hope is that that not only continues but expands. Uh, into the Tatarstans and the Sakhas and the Chechnyas of the world as yeah. well to elevate those conversations, those histories, and those legacies to more fully flesh out our understanding of Russia as it is. Yeah, and like uh, you know, you point to an important uh, thing here. I mean, you 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 got your introduction to this part of the world through Kazakhstan. I got it first through Tatarstan, then through Russia proper, and then through Ukraine. And I'm grateful that the, you know, unlike previous generations that couldn't venture beyond Moscow if they were even able to visit the Soviet Union, I was able to see this broken up empire from different vantage points and come, I think, to to a different conclusion. And now, you know, in addition to attempting to influence policymakers here in Washington, which we'll be doing with our paper launch on Friday, um, I'm trying to influence the next generation of Russia experts through my my students at UTA uh, by, by kind of trying to impart this upon them. Well, this is a, a great place to wrap up, Casey. We're going to continue this live and in person Friday at 1230 Eastern at Atlantic Council headquarters here in Washington, D.C. Um, it's, uh, it's located at 15th and L Street. I'm going to include a link to that event in the show notes, as well as a link uh, where you can register for and watch online. Or if you're, you know, fortunate enough to live in our wonderful nation's capital, come and see it in person if you register in time. But th this event will be Friday, and I, I hope we I hope we get a good attendance. We got a great panel uh, there. In addition to you and I, it's going to be Ambassador John Herbst, who served as American ambassador to Ukraine and is the uh, the, the director of the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council. Professor Angela Stent, uh, State Department veteran, who's a professor at the Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and the legendary Russian journalist Evgenia Albat. So it promises to be a, a great discussion that we're going to have here in D.C. on Friday. On that note, we will wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name's Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the Uber hip borough of Brooklyn, New York, has been journalist and longtime Russia watcher Casey Michelle, author of the must-read book American Kleptocracy and the soon-to-be-released book Foreign Agents. Casey, of course, is also the author of the soon-to-be-released report from the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center, five scenarios for Russia's future that we've been discussing today. It's excellent, and I ought to know because I edit. Uh, Casey, thanks for an enlightening discussion, for making me and our readers a whole lot smarter. Thanks, Brian. I'll see you soon. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Jarrah Rahman is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and working on our throughout our discussion. Jarrah also and 
handles are all important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the platform formerly known as the Twitter at Power Vertical, and now you can follow us on Threads and Blue Sky at Power Vertical, and please do, because we're trying to build up our following there. And you can subscribe to the new Power Vertical newsletter on Substack. Join us again next week, and until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. Thank you.